week two into a new sermon series, the last week of Jesus' life. I concur with Chris here. After, after that worship service and after the admonition that he gave, I'm, I'm done too. I mean, we could all just go home. And after, after I speak, you may think, yeah, he's right. He should have just stopped right there. Because it's, it's not Sunday we're talking about here. This is Monday. I don't know if you, anybody love Mondays. Mondays, rainy days and Mondays always get me down. I don't know what it is. Just, it's one of those things. And so the last week of Jesus' life had a Monday in it. And this is what we're talking about today. On a Sunday, we're talking about Monday. After Jesus came riding in on that colt, that full of that donkey, and he was proclaimed king, he made himself very evident that he was a humble king, given to, to lay down his life willingly for the sin of all people. He's a king worth following. He's a king worth obeying. He's a king worthy of praise. He's a king worthy of our devotion and our life. He's worthy of all things. That was Sunday. Now it's Monday. What happens when Jesus confronts the things that really matter to him? The things that he deeply cares about. I mean, when you're passionate about something, when something really matters to you and, and it's, it gets under your skin, what, what things really just get you to the edge of your seat? What makes you pound the table? What makes you get up and just start to get a little loud about life, about a situation, about a relationship, or about a problem, an issue? What is, what is it that gets you, your heart going just a little bit faster? Well, what matters to Jesus really ought to matter to us I mean, he is our king, right? And so we find on Monday that what Jesus confronted was a fig tree and a temple. A tree and a temple. Turn to Mark 11. Mark chapter 11. These stories are found in varying versions in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we're going to focus in on Mark's gospel today. Mark 11, verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in in the distance a fig tree in leaf, details important, okay, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it wasn't the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Skip down then to verse 20, where Mark puts this on Tuesday morning. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, how many of you have read that and you think, what is wrong with him? I mean, he's just hangry or something. I mean, what's going on? Jesus is just getting in, the, in, in this. It's not, even the, it's not even the season for figs. And he gets all uptight about not having some, who didn't give him breakfast anyway? In 1927, a British philosopher named Bertrand Russell wrote an essay called Why I'm Not a Christian. And in it, he comments on this, this very story. And he said, this is a very curious story because it, it wasn't the right time of year for figs. And you really couldn't blame the tree. I mean, how many of you can identify with the tree at this point? 
He says, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue that Christ stands quite as high as some people in history. (laughs) Ouch, um, Mr. Russell. I mean, I think, obviously, he's wrong in so many levels. I mean, apparently, Russell didn't have my Sunday school teacher as a kid. My fifth grade Sunday school teacher, Helen Bennett, wonderful lady, crazy person, you know, but she was, she was an awesome teacher. And I remember one day with a bunch of us squirrely fifth graders, she had a dollar bill in her hand. She took out a book of matches. This, this, I mean, the lesson was probably about materialism or greed or something like that. I can't remember. All I remember is the dollar bill. And she took out the book of matches. And with one hand, I don't know, have you ever flipped a book of matches over? Did the the thumb thing and struck the match with one hand. It's cool. You can do it. If you practice long enough, I tried and I did it. And she, t- she flipped this match and she lit it and then she lit the dollar bill on fire in front of all of us. And we're like, hey, you know, and half of it's burning and she's laughing and then she, and she blows it out, throws half a burnt dollar bill there on the table. I had that half burnt dollar bill in my Bible for years. And I remember that. It was an object lesson. It doesn't mean that my Sunday school teacher was against currency. She doesn't want a cashless society. She's not against capitalism or whatever. She didn't hate the government. She didn't want to be in jail for destroying federal currency. She just had a lesson to teach and a point to make. And this is on on so many levels. Jesus is doing the same thing. Jesus curses a tree and it withers. It doesn't mean he's not an environmentalist. I mean, it doesn't mean he hates the earth. He created it, for crying out loud. And he's using that tree to tell a story and to illustrate something that means a great deal to him. See, a smart guy named Russell should have read the Old Testament because God, in a few places in the Old Testament, is seen as someone hungry, looking for figs, as a symbol of looking for righteousness or faithfulness in people. You check out Micah chapter 7, verse 1. The prophet says, How miserable I am. I feel like a fruit picker after the harvest who can find nothing to eat, not a cluster of grapes, not a single early fig can be found to satisfy my hunger. The godly people have all disappeared. Not one honest person is left on the earth. Now what's he hungry for? Something to eat or a person who's righteous and honest? Both probably. Hosea chapter 9, verse 10 and 16. The Lord says, O Israel, when I first found you, it was like finding fresh grapes in the desert. And when I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the first ripe figs of the season. But they deserted me for worshiping Baal, giving themselves to that shameful idol, and they became vile, vile as the God they worshiped. The people of Israel are struck down, verse 16. Their roots are dried up. They will bear no more fruit. It wasn't the season for figs, Mark says. But the gospel says it was in full leaf. This is important. A historian named Alfred Edersheim notes that early in the spring, like we presently are, it could be odd that a tree was in full leaf. You see any trees out there in full leaf right now? No. And so in that sense, in that time of year, it was a little bit of an oddity that this tree was not just sprouting little bits. It was in full leaf. And so the, the assumption was that somewhere in there, because fig trees fruit before they leaf, or as they leaf, 
that there would be some early figs on that tree. Is this the point? It is, it is part of the point. It's not the, it's not the season for fully ripe figs. It is the season that this tree, if it's fully leafed, it could be that there's something on it. And it also is something I didn't know. You know, there's a lot of oak trees uh, that carry their leaves all winter long. They don't really lose all the leaves all winter until the new ones come. There are fig trees that keep the old fruit. They don't just fall to the ground automatically. And so Jesus may have had an assumption, well, maybe there's some old fruit on that tree. There wasn't. There wasn't any old fruit. There wasn't any new young fruit on that tree. It was barren, a fruitless tree. Jesus told a parable in Luke 13 about a tree like that. The owner's like, cut it down. It's not doing anything. It's just using up the soil. And one of his servants said, you know what? If we just tend it a little bit, if we just give it some time, we give it some attention, we, we prune it a little bit, we give it some TLC, let's just see if it does something next year. Don't cut it down just yet. Jesus cares not just about trees bearing fruit. Jesus cares a great deal about believers being fruitful, about people bearing fruit in their life. A guy named Greg Lanier wrote for uh, the Gospel Coalition, and he, he brings out some of these New Testament um, passages. And the first that I thought of was John 15. If you want to look, John 15 bears this out. Verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true grapevine. My father is the gardener. And he cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. He prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they'll produce even more. And you've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Remain in me, I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. You cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. And those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me you can do what? Nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me, my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. And this brings great glory to my Father. And a legitimate question is, well, what kind of fruit are you talking about? What, what is this fruit? How, what does it look like? What do I do? Well, Galatians 5 starts talking about some of this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All these things produce actions that produce fruit for the kingdom. This fruity language is all over the New Testament. Philippians 1, verse 11. Paul says, May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. What's that? Well, he explains it. The righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. It's not just one, it's one thing to be saved from your sins. It's one thing to accept the gift of salvation. Then you grow up in it, and then you reach the results of that life are called fruit. It's just the results of the salvation that you have accepted, the life that you now live as a result of that. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, be fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. It's just about results, not works as to save you, 
but as a result of your salvation, to work and to have these results as a matter of this is your response to God and to be fruitless after having so much poured into you. Jesus says there's a real problem with that. This isn't to win God's affection or approval. It's to yield that which he's already done in us. I don't know. There's a lot of times our personal lives can look like they're in full leaf, but you get there and there's nothing of any nutrition. It looks good on the outside. You can look all kinds of good on the outside. But what are we producing? What are we doing that will last? Fruit that will last. Even past our lifetimes. Churches can look the same. A lot of great activity, what is the, where is the power and what is the fruit? What's the lasting results? of kingdom investment from individuals and churches. I think that Jesus deeply cares about the believers be fruitful. And he also cares that outsiders have access. Take a look back at Mark 11. In the middle of those two little paragraphs in verse 15, reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. This is something that, um, that I think every, every church ought to have a burden for. We had, um, we had a great time. Yesterday, um, nine couples came out for, for the couple checkup, the marriage retreat we had here. And um, between Rhoda and I, we, we had a great time with those couples. We, we had a great conversation. We, we talked, and we, we talked, and we shared, and we prayed. Um, and you know what, guys? Um, I think we're allowed a certain number of words per day, right? That's, uh, you know, I think that the average number of words a man says per day is like maybe five or ten. I mean thousand. The average amount of words a, man, a woman, maybe 20 to 30,000. And so I used up all my words for today, yesterday. And so what I have right here. I have a bunch of thoughts, and sometimes it's difficult to get them out without sounding like, well, like Chris said, this isn't an indictment. This is just, a, it's a challenge. It's something to reflect on as a, as a collective, as a church body. We need to keep evaluating how are, how are we, and if we are, how are we keeping outsiders out Is there any way that the church makes it difficult for people to connect with God? I asked several people this question over over last week, um, and I got lots of really interesting, heartbreaking answers. Because some of them had had experiences about being shut out of a church, or or somehow ignored, or, or it was difficult to get connected somewhere And maybe some of you are wondering, why, why are you so you know, intent on this hospitality team? And what is all this business about you know, getting people at the doors? And I, 
this, this really does make me, see, I've run out of words. Can any of you read my mind right now? Can you read my heart? Because what made Jesus super upset about the temple wasn't just that the Jews had set up shop and that anybody coming in from the countryside, and especially any non-Jew that wanted to be there to worship the, the God of Israel, had to bring currency. And before you could buy the animal that you were to sacrifice, a pure animal that had to pass inspection, you had to have your money, your currency, changed out for the temple currency. And of course, what's the exchange rate going to be on that? If you're, if you're trying to make a little money on the side, you're going to, you're going to you know, make that a, to your advantage, that, that currency transfer. And then, if the, if, if the animal that they brought doesn't pass, you have to make them buy one of yours. And it was, it was a racket. It's what it was. And so Jesus was upset about that, but he wasn't just upset about them doing that. He was upset about where they were doing it. It was in the court of the Gentiles. And I don't have a big map to show you, but the Jews had their part of the temple compound, a very spacious inner place. And the Jews had the court outside of that. And it was a large, spacious place too. And they could only go so far. This is where the market was set up. The place where the nations could come in, non-Jews, Gentiles could come in and worship the God of Israel because they were devoted to him. They wanted to be there they wanted to give the sacrifice. But they had to get through all the noise, all the racket, all the currency exchange, all of the obstacles to get to worship. Some, now listen, the Jews, want, the Jews had to be there. It was mandated. Every Jewish male had to show up at these three feasts. The Gentiles, they didn't have to be there. They did not have to come. They wanted to travel. They took time. They brought their families. They took out time from their fields and their businesses. They wanted to be there. And the, the people, the insiders, made it hard. They made it hard. Can anybody kind of relate where I'm going with this right now? Because I think as a, a church people, that don't have the outsiders as a focus can get to where, you know, this is my seat. And I don't want you sitting here. This is my chair. Or this is my, that, somebody took my parking spot. Can you believe that? Or, or, or they changed this. Or, or they, I can, they're, making, they're making room for all these rowdy kids. Or whatever, whatever it is that you've heard people say. The church is really is it's, the church is about the only the only group in existence that, that exists primarily for those that aren't a part of it yet. And so, as a, as a as a people who who love church family and love doing these things, we also need to love who's not here yet and make room for them. There's some empty chairs around you. Who who have you envisioned? bringing in and sitting right next to you. Especially Easter's coming up. You know what I mean? There's opportunity there. Are we thinking in these lines? This book called People Are the Mission by Danny Franks. He talks about his church and he talks about his pastor. He says that the gospel is offensive, but nothing else should be. 
And she said, we make every effort to attract unbelievers to our services and make the gospel accessible to them, and we make no apology for it. We've created an environment that reflects the gospel disposition virtue of hospitality. We don't strive to excel in hospitality because it brings people back to our church, but because it best reflects how Christ treated us. So, he says, we do as the, everything we do as a church speaks. The sermon, he says, starts in the parking lot. Before we ever get in the door, the message is loud and clear. The question is not if we're sending a message. The question is what message are we sending? And so we've been trying to improve and to get more people involved with really anticipating and receiving people who come in the door for the first time and making it easier for them to access the good news and this kind of community that they can be a part of. We might draw a crowd by whatever means, but to keep a crowd, people need to sense genuinely that you love them, that you expected them, and you want them to come back. The kind of things that make Jesus get a little loud, the kind of things that matter to him, are believers being fruitful and outsiders having access. And I wonder if there's a direct correlation between individuals or, or churches being fruitless and they themselves then being a barrier to others having access to the gospel. The more fruit there is, I think the more barriers are torn down and we exist for people who aren't here yet. Everything we do is for those that need to know the life-saving, eternal salvation of Christ. And so to take stock of that, I tried to make this question. How do we as a church keep people from connecting with God? How do I keep people from connecting with God? I need to start with me. How do I do that? And if I do, if I do that, how do I do that? And how can I stop making that, how can I stop making that mistake? I'll close with just um, a bit of an answer to that question. And it's a friend of mine from out of state, so I don't think that she'll mind me telling you her answer. She says that in her church, they're making a big push for people to get into small groups. And I understand that. I think that's an amazing thing. And I think we need to push for more of those, more involvement in Sunday school classes and in, 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 in events like, um, like if gathering and, and men's events and, um, and things like that, uh, because, you know, connection does grow in circles and, and uh, more than in, in rows. But what she said was, I'm a little afraid to join one of those at my church, because she said, in full disclosure, she's like, I'm a pro-life Democrat, and in the county that I live in, in Colorado, is very largely majority conservative pro-Trump, especially, she says, on my church. And, my, and the online presence that the Christians in my church have, she said, if I joined a small group and was really real about how I feel or what, how, how I relate to culture or the world, I'm afraid they wouldn't want me in their group. And then if I really tried to take over to um, people who would vote this the way that I tend to vote, they would find out that I'm pro-life, and a lot of them would be like, what are you doing in our party? Get out of here. She said, I don't feel like, I feel like I'm, very few people understand me. 
and she's a dear sister in Christ. I've known her for years. I, the idea that we have to agree on everything before we can be friends, <laughs> yeah, very few friends, <laughs> if that's the case. She's got a fear of being accepted because of who she is. Anybody relate? I think if we loved people the way that Jesus loved people, we would, we would find the things important that Jesus found important. We would not create a bunch of the lines that we've created. We might even tear down some obstacles that keep people from the gospel. We might even tear down some things that put God in a box and try to put Jesus in some kind of political structure that we can agree with. I think if we took the gospel seriously, and we're serious about truth in love, I think we might see 3,000 people baptized in one day. I don't know. But I want to be that, I want to grow to, to be that kind of, of church. I want, to, I want us as a family to be those kind of people that it matters when, when somebody doesn't have access to the gospel, when somebody is barred away from it, when people are living a Christian life and they have no evidence to prove it, that that ought to just get us a little uptight about and say, listen, listen, come on, we, we need to get things straightened out here. We need to come to some understanding and it has to start with us, with me, with you. And as a people, working in little groups here and there, sharpening each other, I think, I think with the Spirit's help and power, we've got a chance. Happy Monday, people. <laughs> Let's pray together. God, thanks, you, thanks for um, revealing some of the difficult things, for giving us a, uh, a, a perspective that Christ had. And may the things that mattered to him matter to us. To enter into conversations with grace, but also scripture, that those things are not mutually exclusive. You're a God of truth and you're a God of love. And you don't compartmentalize any of that. It's not either or, it's both and. And so help us to be a people that reflect that. And help us to know how best every day to bend the knee to King Jesus. To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor just like we love ourselves. And to be a church that does this collectively and strives to do it better all the time. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.